Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Let's talk about Moses and Exodus. If you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. We read this. When the people, Israel, this nation, saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. If you've not been with us throughout the series to to catch you up quickly, God's people were in Egypt where they were provided for. Uh, God used Egypt to miraculously provide for his family, his people, until they actually spent 400 years in oppression and abuse and slavery in Egypt. And so they cry out to Yahweh God. Our God hears the cries of his people, and so he responds and miraculously saves them. They defeat the, the world power at that time. Natural disasters are organized to benefit just God's people. Seas are separated. Food is provided from the sky. Like God does thing after thing, miracle after miracle to provide for his people. And it lands them in this moment where God provides the Ten Commandments, which function like marriage vows. God is committing to be the one true God for his people, and they are committing to follow him and him alone. And so there's this beautiful ceremony saying, it's just them too, God and his people. And they will have this this beautiful life together in the promised land. God provides it in the form of the Ten Commandments. And then God and Moses go up to this summit mountain meeting to go, awesome, the marriage has happened. Now let's plan what is next. And that's where we pick up. Moses is with God here in verse one, and there's this delay, and they they freak out. They don't know what to do. So they go to the next in charge to Aaron and go, hey, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened. So they give up on him and they move to the next. Aaron replies, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Let's pause there for a second. The gold rings that he's speaking of were things we read earlier in Exodus that God had provided for his people, the Israelites, so that they would have... uh, tools, materials to build the temple, to build their next life, value, and wealth. God provided for them. And notice what they do with what God had provided for them. With the things God had provided for them, they build another God. And you and I do the same. With the skill sets God has given us, the resources, the opportunities, the relationships, so often... We take what God has provided for us, and in a moment of our own uncomfort or unwelcome timing, or we don't like what is happening in that moment, we take what God has provided for us, and we utilize that very thing or people or whatever it is, circumstances, to build something else that we think will provide for us better than the God that gave us those things in the first place. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. And this is not random. This golden calf, as we refer to it, was a common god. This is not like a new idea for them. They're returning to an old hero. This is a god of fertility and strength and success that the surrounding nations, their neighbors, often worshipped. And it's so easy for us to sit in these charcoal gray-black chairs in Prescott, Arizona in 2023 and think, how could those idiots worship a, a statue of a calf. But we do the same thing too. It's just not in the shape of a golden calf, but we have gates and garages and security systems that we rely on to protect us. And we have retirement accounts and investment opportunities and career pathways that we really trust to give us what we want, to give purchasing power. We have relationships of people that we depend on as if they were our savior, that we'd never say it that way medical systems, political parties, and ideologies that are these things we turn to instead of God because somewhere we reached a place of discomfort and in that we don't know how to get through it with our God so we turn to the next. And again, we're the same as, as God's people here in the desert. And then it gets worse, which it usually does. Then they say, they look at this golden calf, right? God has performed countless miracles for them to be in this place not very long ago. And here's their memory. They look at the calf and they say, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So in this moment, they not only forget all that God has done, they use what God has provided to build another God to rely on. Then they give credit to this God for what Yahweh God had actually done. And I think that begs the question for us too. What are the things or who are the people or the organizations or the groups that you frequently give credit to for things only God has done? Because we all have those things. Maybe number one on that list is self that we give credit to instead of giving credit where credit is due. So not only have they forgotten what God has done, they actually assign credit to someone else. Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. How quick we are to forget the loving works of God. When Aaron saw this, he kind of tries to, to remedy this situation. He built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement, there will be a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. He's like blending it all. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to play. The whole uh, got up to play is a really interesting translation piece here. Depending on the, uh, the translation you use, uh, the picture painted is very different. Eat, drink, and play is basically like a massive music festival in the, the desert filled with a lot of alcohol and substances and sex. It's like a wild desert sex party. That's what's happening in this moment. Like get up to play is not an innocent just like, oh, cool, let's have a little fun party. Invite the kids over and it'll be great. Like, what's happening here is significant. And that's going to matter later. This is not a mild thing because they had just, in essence, got married. They had just said, I do to God. They said yes to this relationship, to this covenant that was supposed to be between these two parties. And then moments later, God disappears for just a little while longer than they wanted. And they turn 
to a different God that they make out of things God had already provided for them. Why? How do they get to that place that quickly? And I think we, if we're honest, have to ask the question, how do we get to that place that quickly? Because we do. Look again at at verse one. I think the answer's there. When the people saw that Moses, so not even God, but God's representative in this case, delayed, that is the key word, when they saw that he delayed in coming to them. Here's how we can kind of interpret this, I think. Unexpected, uncomfortable, or unwanted timing caused Israel's trust in Yahweh to crumble. Unexpected, uncomfortable, or unwanted timing caused their trust in this God to totally dissolve in a matter of moments. And that begs the question for you and I, Has Jesus let you experience unexpected, uncomfortable, or unwanted timing? Did his timing or has his timing not met your expectations at some point? And how do you respond when that happens? Could be challenges of having children. Could be having a child but too soon could be an opportunity in a career that doesn't pan out when or how you want it to. Could be a real estate market swing that forces decisions that are different than you would have made. A retirement account not uh, performing in the timing that you would like it to. There's a whole host of things that that could mean, but have you experienced unexpected, unwanted, or uncomfortable timing? Have you considered that maybe God wanted that on purpose? Maybe that's a way to actually draw us nearer to him. Often when we don't like God's timing, we're quickly tempted to to do one of two things. Grasp for control and try to be like God ourselves, try to take over, or to search for a new God that we perceive is more willing to flex to our desired timing. So if you faced unexpected, unwanted, or uncomfortable timing, have you, you found in your experience that you do one of those two things? Try to just be God, take control, work harder, put your head down, gain control financially, spatially, emotionally, relationally, in terms of the opportunities, career, whatever it is, or do you just go look for the next hero, the next God, the next thing to provide? Maybe it's getting distracted, escaping and sex or substances or the next show you'll binge watch. Maybe it's a relationship that you rely on more than or first before God. It could be a variety of things, but often when there's a delay, there's an interruption from what we want, when we want, how we want it, there's a good chance that that leads to our trust and God being broken. There's, I think, another layer to that, though. So not only was there this delay and this timing issue, so they didn't kind of receive the gratification in the moment they wanted it. I think, though, the reason that timing or an unwelcomed, unwanted kind of moment was so significant is because I would make the argument they didn't actually know this God. They had seen him work. They'd seen his miraculous power in their lives and the lives of family and friends. They'd heard stories about him. They had been heard by this God. 
They'd been saved by this God. They'd been provided for by this God, but they didn't know him deeply and intimately and personally enough that when the timing wasn't what they expected or wanted or were comfortable with, they can endure that knowing, oh, this God will come through. I want to put that series of things up on the screen. They've been blessed by Yahweh. They've been saved by Yahweh. They had witnessed the miraculous power of Yahweh. They had been heard by Yahweh. They had been provided for by Yahweh, but they had not known him intimately and personally. If we keep that list up for a minute, can you look at that list and say that those things are true in your life? Have you experienced that from our God? All of heads are nodding, which is great news. The, the bad news of it is this. You can experience all of those things and still not know God intimately and personally. And if you don't know him intimately and personally, when, not if, you experience unwelcomed, unwanted, or uncomfortable timing in any category, you will likely grasp for more control to be like God or find the next hero, the next God to turn to that you perceive will uh, more adequately meet your timing. This, uh, this past Tuesday, it was raining a lot. It keeps happening. It was also cold. I still don't know where I live and I'm contemplating moving if this <laughs> continues because I don't love it. But it was, it was raining a lot. Tuesdays are like typically my, my busiest day of the week in terms of meetings. So we have a ton of meetings back to back to back. I'm in my third or fourth. And uh, I get a call from my wife, which I ignored, which we have an agreement. I, if I'm in the middle of meetings and stuff, I'll ignore the first. But if I ever get two calls, drop everything, we'll talk, because that means something needs to happen. So she calls again two times. I answer. Simultaneously, I'm getting multiple texts from my father and my mother. And Chelsea's like, hey, your dad says that we need to pull the kids out of school right now and get everybody home. And I'm like, what happened? And she's like, well, it's it's raining a lot, and he thinks that the bridge is going to flood and no one's going to be able to get home. And I'm like, it's just barely raining. I mean, I don't like it anymore because we've had so much, although I'm thankful for the moisture. But do we really have to do this? And so I listened because I've learned something over my years on this earth with my father. Keyword almost, okay? Almost always he's right. And so I've had to just go, all right, I trust the guy. This makes no sense to me, but whatever. So I wrap up my meeting quickly. I cancel a few others, run to the grocery store, head home. We get the kids out of school early. I'm at home and I'm eating lunch and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I just ruined my whole day. The bridge was fine. There was no water. And I'm like, it finally happened. I thought I had another decade or two, but my father is now at that age. That age where like two days prior to any potential weather thing, not only is he going to like hunker down and say, hey, go to Costco and buy half the store, the world's ending, but he's now the PSA guy for like the whole community. You know, like there's that age where any weather game over. And I'm like, my dad is usually really calm, like... This is crazy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of making fun of him on the phone to him and to my wife, but this is also sort of my public apology to my father, because once again, he was right. 
he was a little delayed in his timing, but hours later, we had friends in our neighborhood that didn't get their kids out of school early, and they could not get back home. Like, that's the one primary way to get to the house, and it was flooded, and the city shut down the bridge, and you couldn't get across. And so I, I share that to kind of ask this question, who in your life has earned the right for you to be patient with them? That's another kind of metric or way to think about the quality of your relationships. Are there any people that you've learned to be patient with, to trust, even in moments where maybe it doesn't seem likely or right or to make sense? My father now in my life has earned that right. And then I'd ask the question about Jesus. Like, be honest, get past the, hey, we're in church, so the answer's Jesus, yay. Do you actually believe, like sincerely, in the everyday stuff of life, that Jesus has earned the right in your life for you to be patient with him when you face unwanted, unwelcomed, or uncomfortable timing? Like if we're honest, is the answer just a simple yes? Does he have that track record? That's what this comes down to here. One of the things I've really just come to enjoy that our, our family does is we'll go on walks some kind of afternoon, evenings. We'll put the baby in the stroller, our dog Nala on the leash. The kids will ride bikes ahead of us, and we'll just go through like a, a seven-minute walk around the neighborhood, and I really enjoy that. It's a great way to kind of decompress from the day for Chelsea and I to connect, talk about what's happening, even if we're just silent, just be together. And when you go on a, a walk like this, like there's a deep intimacy, connection, unity that happens. For clarity, this is different than hiking. I shared this in the last service and everyone's like, oh, you do like hiking. I don't like hiking. This is just a walk <laughs> with my family on the street. So I just want to set the record straight. But we're on these walks and it's just good. Like I know my wife well. And it's actually biblical too. In, in the first few chapters of Genesis, we read that Adam and Eve had this habit. There was this idea that they walked with God in the cool of the day. They knew him well. The way I know my wife, the way Adam and Eve walked with God and knew him is very different than the way Israel knew Yahweh. They had, again, been saved by him. They'd been forgiven. They'd been provided for. They'd seen his miracles. They'd seen his acts. But they didn't know him well enough, again, when unwelcomed, unwanted, or uncomfortable timing hit to go, he's worthy of being patient with. And so where do you fall into the, like, those categories relationally with God? Have you just experienced those things that are true about him? Or do you walk with God? I think it's actually kind of sadly like one of those Christian cliches you just don't say anymore because it's been like used to death. But there's actually deep beauty in it when you look at what it means. Like people will ask, hey, how was your walk with God? That is what it is. But like, do you walk with God? Do you know him in that way? Because again, if not when, unwelcomed, unwanted, uncomfortable timing shows up, maybe sent by God for you, you need to know him deeply and intimately, not just transactionally. I guess one of the kind of greatest hindrances of our, our faith, the way we follow Jesus kind of in our, our country right now, 
Francis Chan put it this way in one of his books or sermons or something a long time ago. He talked about heaven, and if you could have heaven and all of the things that you imagine heaven being, all the great feasts and festival, all the people, your friends and family you want to be with, there's no crying or tears or pain or anything bad. Whatever your kind of concept of heaven is, you get that, but Jesus isn't there. Would you actually care? And again, we're in church, so we're like, yay, Jesus. But pause the yay, Jesus, and be honest. If you could have all of those things, the circumstances that we think heaven is, but not the person of Jesus, does it make a difference? That's the difference in walking with Jesus and simply having been transactionally blessed, saved by, forgiven, provided for by Jesus. And there is a difference. If we don't know him personally and intimately, when we're faced with those challenges, that's when we turn to old heroes, to old gods, to old opportunities. Yahweh is trustworthy enough to be patient with. We see that in the first six verses. We see that throughout Exodus. And the the next section, the, the kind of closing of this chapter, what we'll see is this. We can also trust that he will be patient with us beyond what we deserve. So not only is he worthy of us being patient with, which is a weird concept. Like how often do you think about, oh, I need to be patient with God. No, you actually do. And he's earned that right for us to be patient with him because we don't understand everything. His timing is not ours. Yet, and he's also patient with us so far, so beautifully far beyond what we deserve. Uh, Certain vehicles for me, like bring about certain memories. I don't know if it's that way for you. I'm gonna be driving down the street and see a certain like make and model or walk by some parked cars and certain cars just like bring back certain memories. And one of those is like a, must have been like a 2005 GMC Sierra truck. It was black and decked out. It was my friend Zach's truck. And I grew up with Zach. We played sports together since we were just like tiny little boys. We went to high school together. He was a couple years older than me. So Every time at lunch, I would just hop in Zach's truck because I couldn't drive, and it was an open campus here at Prescott High School, which was a blast and also probably slightly dangerous. So all of these juniors and seniors in high school had like 35 minutes to drive as fast as they could to get to a nearby restaurant, eat, and then drive as fast as you could back. So we would do that in Zach's truck. His truck was like very recognizable, and I have this one memory of sitting in the back seat and at the end of this time, right, everyone gets done from whatever restaurant they were at, and you just line up at the intersection on Ruth Street on the south side waiting to go back up to Prescott High School. And I don't know exactly how it happened. Some idiot in the back seat, I don't think it was me, had this idea that we were like three cars back in the line, and the light goes green. And somehow, Zach made the determination that the best thing to do in that moment was to stop while it was green. All right, so there's like three minutes until the bell rings. Once that light turns red, you've got like three more minutes before it goes green again. 30 to 40 cars behind us, three go through, it's green, Zach stops. 
there's high schoolers hanging out of the windows and the backs of the beds of trucks, like yelling and screaming at him to go. The horns are honking. And I have to tell you, it was an unbelievable adrenaline rush. Like we're sitting there and like one moment we're like, go, go, go. You just got to go. And someone else is like, no, don't go. And like, we're all changing our minds. Everyone's furious behind us. And we made it so courageously the whole time till it turned yellow. And then we went through. And then we parked. And we had so much time to just casually walk up to the door. And then we just waited there. And it was like this parade of people with their hand out the window and one finger. And with each one, it was like, that was worth it. That was, that was fun. So that was high school and Zach's black truck. So then Zach and I ended up going to, to college together. He's a, a few years older, so he drove out to, to Virginia. My mom and I flew out, got all settled. My mom left, and I, I still have this image, and more so the smell of Zach's black truck in the parking lot kind of of our, our dorm. And there's, I don't know, probably 100-plus cars in that little parking lot. And Zach's truck was really nice, and I couldn't drive, so we always drove in that. And it just smelled funky. And after a few days, we're like, what is going on here? And so finally, he climbed into the, the bed of the truck and found that he had forgotten an ice chest from the road trip like 17 days earlier. And so you could kind of imagine, right? Like melted ice, old lunch meat, cools down at night, heats up during the day, and then repeat for 17 days. It was not good. And so being just the really great roommate that I am, I'm like, hey, that's the, that's the problem there. And then I went into our dorm room and said, good luck. So he cleaned it. I, today, thinking about this, I kid you not, I, like, I gagged a little bit because the smell, I just can smell. And so he finally got it cleaned. It still took like one of those smells like a week or so to just get it out of your nose. It was awful. But there's this word and this verse in, in verse 7. And the idea kind of in the original language was of something irrevocably spoiled, like, no one in their right mind would go be like, hey, that lunch meat, that looks good. I'm a college student. I'm poor. It's like ramen. You would not do that because it is disgusting. It cannot be brought back. You don't touch it. It's over. It's dead. It needs thrown away. Look at, look at verse 7. Here's the idea that we, we're reading here. Yahweh spoke to Moses. He says, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. That word corrupt is the word I'm talking about. It means irrevocably spoiled. That is a powerful like, combination of words. Irrevocably spoiled, forever ruined, can't be brought back. That's how God refers to his people, irrevocably spoiled. The good news is that that is not the end, though. While every one of us have been irrevocably spoiled, Jesus has a beautiful habit of taking what is irrevocably spoiled and miraculously bringing it back to life. And so something that actually was truly, really irrevocably spoiled, he brings forgiveness and he breathes life into it and he's faithful when his people are not, just like he's faithful when we are not. And so my encouragement to you today is if you find yourself in the midst of something that is, maybe not seemingly, but actually is irrevocably spoiled. Could be a host of things. You know what it is. Don't give up on that. 
God will provide wisdom and insight, but again, he has a pattern, a habit of taking what is irrevocably spoiled and breathing life back into it when it seems like that was never possible. Look at verse seven again. Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down at once. There's some important details here. For your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Do you notice what God did here? For 31 chapters, he's like, these are my people and I saved them and I did all these miracles. Like it was my story and my glory. That's what God was saying. And all of a sudden, they're having their their crazy desert party and he's like, hey, Moses, your people that you brought out of Egypt are doing this. It's like I, I remember this this time my son, he is pretty incredible. He can like build anything. And he was just so into playing in his bedroom that's carpeted, that matters. And he was playing, and he was so into what he was playing for a few weeks that he just naturally understood it would be way too much effort and take too much time to take the literal seven steps from his door through the bathroom door to the toilet. And he just found a corner. And he's like, oh, you know what? This corner works just as good. And one day, my, my sister was there, and she's like, hey, Alice is just peeing in the corner. And so I looked at my wife, and I said, do you see what your son is doing? <laughs> Realistically, I pull that card a lot, but anything bad that probably happens should be, it's my son or my children. It's kind of funny, but God is, and I'm going to use this, this word I think matters kind of theologically here. God is toying with the idea of disowning his people. He goes, hey, Moses, your people that you brought up. That actually matters. Now, he doesn't follow through with it, but he's mad. He's angry, and rightfully so. We can kind of just go, oh, they just are, are doing this thing. No, that's why I bring up the crazy, wild desert sex party that's happening. They had just committed to one another. A covenant had been formed. There was a wedding ceremony, and they both said yes. They both said I do. They said here's the vision, and then it's as if they go on their honeymoon of sorts, and God's planning the the whole reality. It'd be like a, a couple going on their honeymoon, and one of them going out to get groceries, and then coming back to find out that their spouse brought an ex over and was having sex with them while they went out to get groceries. Like this isn't a small little thing. This is significant in this moment. It is a, a deep faithlessness and betrayal. And so God goes, hey, your people. Let's continue to, to read here. Go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly, notice time, they quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. As a reminder, they took the things God had provided for them. Out of those things, they built another God to worship and pursue like we are prone to do as well. Yahweh also said to Moses, I have seen this people, meaning I know them, though they don't know him. And they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses interceded with the Lord as God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt? Moses does not want ownership here. <laughs> you brought them out with great power and a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them and the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? 
Turn from your great anger and relent concerning the disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. Here's a beautiful verse. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Though they were faithless, though they rejected him, he was still faithful to them. God will be patient with each of you, with me, way beyond the amount of patience we deserve. Not only has he earned the right for us to be patient with him when we come across unwelcomed or unwanted or uncomfortable timing, but when we don't deserve it at all, he is absurdly, beautifully patient with us. This is key here, though. Wrap up in a minute. That does not mean that there aren't consequences for sin. Relationally, God forgives fully. In, in terms of our salvation, this is not about that. Like God is faithful to us. He will do whatever it takes to love us and win us and be there for us. That will not end. That will have no end. He is always victorious in that. But that does not mean that our decisions don't have ramifications. And we see that here. We, we continue to read. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. That means they're important. God himself wrote these, right? When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, don't be so innocent. It's not the sound of a victory cry or the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. God himself wrote on these tablets. I've stood on this stage many different times officiating a wedding between two people. And when that gets done, there's a ceremony. We go somewhere in the back, and there's witnesses, and they sign, and I sign two copies. What is happening here in this moment is the equivalent of taking that marriage certificate that then needs to be sent to make it official and just ripping it in half, saying this covenant is broken. Notice, though, even after all of the speech he gave to God, Moses does this. God doesn't. The covenant is, is broken of sorts, Moses is enraged. He takes the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. That is an expensive mistake. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Do not be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. He's the one that's supposed to be good with words. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Just happened. But if you remember not long ago, he carved the calf out. Like his story has changed. Moses saw that the people were out of control for Aaron had let them get out of control resulting in weakness before their enemies. And Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, this is going to be really, really harsh. It is harsh and it sounds harsh. Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. 
And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance. And each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, today you have been dedicated to the Lord since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you have brought a blessing on yourselves today. That sounds awful and horrendous and like God is just this terrible person, but there's a few key things we need to see there. They didn't kill every brother and neighbor and friend. 3,000 was actually a very, very, very small percentage of how big this nation was. And this wasn't just some innocent dance party where they got up to play. They had just made these vows. They were to be God's people and he was to be their God and it was to be just them and he was making all of these beautiful plans to give them this land and life and everything that was to be good. And in the midst of that, they reject him and they choose to cheat with another God. Again, the equivalent that comes to mind is a a brand new couple being on their honeymoon. While one leaves for a short time, the other brings along their ex that they brought to have sex with there in that room. Now, would it make sense, even if the one spouse forgives in that case, to be like, hey, it's all good. We'll just move forward. Let that ex just stay next door? No. The 3,000 that were dealt with that day were the ones that brought this about. They were the ones that kept encouraging and tempting the people to turn from Yahweh God and would continue to do so to turn them to other gods. There are consequences. There are things that have to be done for faithfulness because what those 3,000 brought was just harm and destruction to everyone around them. We cannot confuse God's forgiveness and the salvation he offers to us for the absence of consequences in sin. Those are not the same thing. There can be consequences for sin and the everyday stuff of our lives that don't have anything to do with salvation and the fact that we get to have relationship with this God. So what we do matters. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. We get this foreshadowing of the work of Jesus here. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people, not yours or mine, (laughs) have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin, then look at the sentence. It's actually deeply beautiful. But if not, please erase me from the book you have written. He offers to take their place, which Jesus would one day do for us. Yahweh replied to Moses, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now go, you lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you, but on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. The Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. I want to look at verse 15 again really quick. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. This plan for a beautiful life for God and his people on these tablets. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Oftentimes, 
Something holy crafted by the hand of God is what is next. But we are too impatient or distracted to wait for it. Unwanted, unwelcomed, uncomfortable timing is what came to the people of Israel. All the while, God was about to head down the mountain with something holy as a gift and a plan for them. Is it possible? I'm not saying it's a guarantee. It's not a promise. But is it possible that something holy is on the other side of the patience God is asking from us? Close with these two things we'll put on the screen. Without the presence of God, meaning the type of relationship where you walk with God, not just a transactional relationship. Without the presence of God actively in our lives, when we are faced with timing in our lives that is unexpected, unwanted, or uncomfortable, we will demand the presence of another, another God, another opportunity, another distraction, who will fail us at best, use us for sure, and most likely abuse us in the end. That person, that thing, that ideology, that group might seem to meet the timing we want in that moment better. But in the end, it will always be far, far worse and far, far more costly than patience with Jesus who has earned the right for us to be patient with him and that we can trust will be patient with us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you again for the good God you are that you are patient with us when we do not deserve it at all. And that we can be patient with you when we don't understand your good and perfect timing when it doesn't fit our timeline, when it isn't what we want or expect or are comfortable with. Help us to do that. We need your help. We want to trust you and we're just often not good at it. Lead us. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.